Hi, I'm Monica Wesley for The Sugar Science, and here with me, direct from University of Sydney, Australia, is uh, Dr. Rena Singh. Rena has an MD, PhD in molecular medicine from Hanover Medical School in Hanover, Germany, and she's currently working as a research fellow at the University of Sydney in the laboratory of Malcolm Kabebe. Welcome, Rena. Thank you. Thank you, Monica, and thank you for a nice introduction. I just wondered if you might talk about how you became scientifically interested in type 1 diabetes. Yeah, of course. So I was always interested in translational medicine. As a developmental biologist, I've worked towards understanding organogenesis, underlying mechanism of congenital diseases and regeneration, in particular with a focus on pediatric cardiovascular defects. Type 1 diabetes is one of the most chronic childhood conditions affecting almost 42.2 million children. We do not know what triggers the onset of disease and therefore it is unavoidable. I, as a developmental and a stem cell biologist, wanted to use my expertise and be a part of developing cure for type 1 diabetes. And that's how I started my career in the field of type 1 diabetes four years back. And so you're a developmental and stem cell biologist, and I understand that the focus of your research is cardiovascular diseases and type 1. You also have an expertise in uh, mouse developmental genetics, transcriptional regulation, transgenesis, expression profiling, and differential gene regulation. So you have quite a deep foundation there. So I think that this has allowed you to dig deep into these genetic regulators and signaling pathways that are involved in cardiac development and regeneration, but also now to help you as you research you know, and develop cell replacement ster- uh, therapy for those with type 1 diabetes. And today, we'd love to talk a little bit more about understanding the effect of the beta cell niche on its structure and function and modifying the microenvironment to augment stem cell-derived beta cell function. I'd love to talk a little bit about your thoughts about the field, what's being done in the field currently that addresses type 1, and then talk about this exciting new paper you just released. Sure. So I must say that we are at a very exciting juncture in type 1 diabetes research and a step closer towards developing cell replacement therapy. We have achieved major milestones in the field. However, still lots need to be done in order to bring therapy in clinics. We need stronger and viable collaborations between development and stem cell biologists, as myself, immunologists, biomedical researchers, clinicians, and industry partners to facilitate the whole process. We have now methods to generate insulin-secreting cells from just insulin-expressing cells. So we have came a long way. However, the cells are still not potent enough to sense and secrete insulin at physiological level of glucose. Also, there are variabilities between different cell lines, understandably so, different labs, and different batches of differentiation within a lab. Therefore, methods need to be further refined to make it robust and cells more potent. And I would say that different labs are working on different aspects of differentiation, be it enrichment of beta cell population in Matthias Hebrook lab from UCSF, Cytoskeletal remodeling, which is one aspect of what I'm doing here in the University of Sydney, or activating certain signaling pathways such as estrogen-related receptor gamma, which is being done in Salk Institute in USA to make cells metabolically potent. 
Now, Field is also working on immunomodulation of either stem cells or differentiated beta cells, and this will help in evading immune rejection. And this is more like one size fits all. In our lab here in the University of Sydney, we are working on completely different aspects. We are trying to understand microenvironment of differentiated spheroids and how beta cell niche play role in its structure and function. So as I said, as I was discussing with you earlier, that the focus uh, in the field is mostly on modifying differentiation methods by adding cocktail of growth factors and morphogens. However, the microenvironment around each beta cell in differentiated spheroid is neither studied nor deliberately controlled. And we know that this is profoundly important for the functionality of differentiated uh, spheroids or the beta cells. A study over past 38 years showed the significance of microenvironment on beta cell differentiation, proliferation, insulin synthesis, as well as secretion. And most of the evidence comes from mice model, which show or which suggest peculiar organization of endocrine cells, and in particular beta cells in native islets. But now here in our lab in the University of Sydney, we are using human pancreatic slices and islets to understand the microenvironment of beta cells, its structural organization and function. Yeah, that was really well said. You just yeah. touched on many of the different, um, the laboratory's focus and, um, you know, sort of give us a, a state of the nation, really appraisal of what's going on there. So thank you. I mean, that's really, it was, it was really well said. And then, so that's kind of the landscape of what's going on, but can you share, you know, what is, what about the exciting new work that's going on in your particular laboratory? This paper that just came out in STEM Cells Translational Medicine, um, entitled Enhanced Structure and Function of Human Pluripotent Stem Cell Derived Beta Cells Cultured on ECM or Extracellular Matrix, is just um, a beautiful paper. November 4th, 2020 came out. Um, can Let's talk about that. Yeah. So we wanted to understand, um, so basically what we are doing, we are generating stem cells derived insulin secreting beta cells in our lab. And as I said earlier, without being repetitive, we know that these cells are not potent enough. So the insulin secretion index of of these cells are not optimal if we compare them with cadaveric human eyes. Yeah. So we wanted yeah. to understand um, the beta cell niche of these different differentiated uh, cells. Um, first of all, we don't know uh, what is the, or we do not fully understand what is the com composition of these differentiated islets. Um, so we started with um, stainings and found that this, these differentiated islets do not uh, only harbor beta cells, but they have other endocrine population as well, such as alpha cells and somatostatin secreting uh, delta cells. Then we got really interested and we wanted to see whether we have the basement membrane protein in differentiated spheroids or not, which has not been investigated earlier. 
So we mm. stained for uh, the basic basement membrane proteins such as collagen 4, laminin, and fibronectin. And to our surprise, we found that all these factors, all these proteins are present there uh, in the differentiated spheroids. And this, this, we have, this is the first time we have reported it. Nobody else um, uh, looked for these uh, proteins in the differentiated uh, spheroids. Yeah, it's important to really pin down what's happening in terms of the, uh, like you said, the microenvironment of these, um, of these cells to better understand how you can optimize their functionality. Exactly. So as I was stating earlier that the interaction between beta cells and basement membrane protein secreted by vascular endothelial cells is, very, uh, is really critical uh, for glucose sensing and uh, uh, stimulated insulin secretion. Um, since basement membrane protein was present in these differentiated spheroids, we wanted to see whether there is any structural and functional polarity of beta cells. Um, and we already have established um, markers and methods to analyze that in our lab using uh, both uh, mouse eyelids as well as human pancreatic slices and eyelids. So we used all those markers uh, in order to analyze uh, uh, the differentiated spheroids. Um, to our surprise, uh, we found that even though there are basement membrane proteins present uh, in the spheroids, but there was little to no structural and functional polarity of beta cells. And these wow. basement membrane proteins were present just as a diffuse web-like structure. Hmm. So the next step, what we did, we just, we isolated these cells from the differentiated spheroids and we plated them on basement membrane uh, coated um, uh, plates uh, or cover slips and we did the glucose-stimulated insulin secretion uh, assays. Um, so interestingly, we found that there was an activated uh, insulin secretion index um, when the cells are in contact with the basement membrane proteins. So basically what we did, we enforced structural and functional polarity in these differentiated beta cells by plating them on basement membrane proteins. Yeah. And this was very, this was very interesting. Um, and now we are uh, trying to dissect the underlying mechanism by identifying differentially regulated genes in spheroids and planar culture using single cell sequencing. And we have identified differential expression of expe expected candidates such as FAK and others, which I cannot reveal further here. Um, uh, which we are uh, further validating. Um, next step is going to be gain and loss of function analysis and how we are going to modify these signaling pathways using uh, CRISPR-Cas9 genome editing tools or uh, drugs uh, so that we can uh, uh, have enhanced uh, function in this uh, differentiated cells because there are uh, other challenges of growing cells on planar culture which we can talk later when we are talking about the scalability and um, the, um, the usefulness of these cells for, uh, uh, for clinical uh, uh, uses. Yeah, I think, that, um, I think that this is a really unique uh, paper in that you're, you've, you've 
really gone through and dissected what they need to really polar be polarized to sit down. And I mean, you, you do need the you need to replicate that polarization, like it is uh, in in vivo, in order to gain your best functionality. Correct. That's your yeah. So we are trying to recapitulate endogenous interactions. Um, and this may have a dramatic effect on its function. And not it has a dramatic effect on its function, as we have shown in our paper. Um, right now, we are talking about just recapitulating one of many interactions, that is beta cells with basement membrane proteins. But we know that beta cells do not exist in silos in the islets. It has a very complex cytostructure. And these cells communicate with other endocrine uh, cells as well. So next step would be to, um, you know, um, to incorporate other cell types so that we can mimic something, um, mimic the cytostructure of the native islets and just check what, what is the effect of uh, this cytostructure on, on, on its functionality. When... Um... You know, I guess a classic um, um, model system of polarity is the kidney. Um, yeah. And I mean, uh, this is kind of, can you draw any um, information from that model system to, you know, what you're doing now in terms of the extracellular matrix and how it, how it controls, um, you know, a differentiation of the kidney of polarized epithelial cells and how you might you know, learn lessons from that system to your system? Um, I haven't studied kidney, uh, kidney uh, during my, like, I, I'm not expert in the kidney organogenesis. So my focus has mostly been on the congenital uh, heart defects or cardiovascular uh, development. And we know how extracellular matrix in heart play critical role in the development of valves and uh, septa. Um, if we mutate uh, genes which are present in the atrioventricular canal, um, we, um, we lose extracellular matrix and that has a profound effect on the development of uh, valves and septa in the heart. So we know that this extra matrix um, uh, provide um, a structural support as well as a signaling cues, which is important for epithelial to mesenchymal transition um, of the of the um, uh, endothelial uh, cells, and then it facilitates the differentiation of uh, these mesenchymal cells um, to the um, to the atrioventricular canal uh, myocardium. So we know that these extracellular matrix provide um, not only a structure, but also um, a ground uh, for the, for the transdifferentiation uh, uh, of epithelial uh, cells. Um, a few models. And, you know, uh, obviously you brought out the cardiac because that's your um, focus and forte. So that's awesome. But I think that... Um, you know, let's talk about, let's shift gears for one second. What are your thoughts about scaling technology in the field? Yeah, scaling technology. So um, we know that like, if, it, if we talk about numbers, there are, I think 30 million Americans and 1.7 million Australians are living with di diabetes. 
So when we are talking about diabetes, we are not talking only about type 1 diabetes because we know that even in the severe cases of type 2 diabetes, the uh, patients are dependent on daily insulin injections. So we are talking about developing cell replacement therapy for almost 422 million people worldwide. And therefore, it is imperative that we establish methods for large-scale production of these cells. Well said. Um, yeah. And if we talk about number, because I have done my maths, so uh, an individual of 50 kg will require almost 0.25 billion beta cells for one round of eyelid implantation. And if we plan to culture these cells in lab, it will require at least 23 to 30 plates of six well plates if everything goes well. And we are targeting wider population. Therefore, it is next to impossible to make cells at such a large scale in dish. Yeah, so we need, yeah, so we need to focus on scaling technology. Um, and while we are talking about scaling, uh, we need to focus on uh, four to five different aspects. First of all, we need to generate these um, mature beta cells and uh, we need bioreactors and different methods of growing cells. Then second is the implantation devices um, to protect the cells from immune attack um, or the immunomodulation of either stem cells or differentiated beta cells as we discussed earlier. Yes. And then assembling these cells together. So we can have like a scaling technology, we can have a strategically located um, companies or, um, or industry where we are generating beta cells at one place, implantation devices at other place, and then assembling them at third place. It's, it's very much similar to what we see in automobile industry, you know, just to- Yeah, yeah. Make it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. They you need a concerted effort. Um Yeah, we need a con not yeah, only we need at the scientific at the bench level, but at the uh at, at the industry level. And exactly. you know, right now, uh Doug Melton has um he had a company, SEMA, in uh Boston and he developed some of the finest um beta cells. And now that company has been bought by Vertex and hoping yeah. that Vertex may have some of, you know, of some or all of the technology that it needs to bring these three um, realms together that you were talking about. So we'll see what happens there. But I totally agree. There's, it's, it's a multifactorial disease and it's also sort of a multifactorial uh, solution that needs to be developed. Exactly. And even like you, you said it correctly, like Vertex bought semi-therapeutics um for about i think it purchased for 950 million if i'm not wrong <laughs> yeah it's right around there um, expensive yeah yeah it's very expensive and now uh yeah so even even if the vertex has all the tools in order to bring these two technologies together and uh make the cells ready for the clinical trials uh we should look to a uh, target um wider population in because different populations may have different response to the clinical trials true so it need to be done in different regions of the world uh, just to um, just to factor in um, the population response and yeah. also yeah. in order to address distorted supply chain 
we need to strategically plan manufacturing and distribution of these cells when and if they are ready in different parts of the world. So this is what I think, that it cannot be just one solution um, located at one place. It needs to be done at multiple places, um, yeah. targeting you're different preaching countries. to the choir here uh, because we we were trying to we're trying to build a, a global platform where all scientists are invited to weigh in and and collaborate on the stage that we're <laughs> intending to develop or we are developing and i think that the that what you know one thing that we do is we we write these these woven um you know uh blogs basically where we actually ask scientists to look at these different topics in type 1 diabetes and uh, just sort of you know we circled together a couple of articles and then we asked them to dig deeper and read the articles themselves and one of the topics that we look at is uh, the global um, you know impact of type 1 diabetes and if you look at the literature it really suggests that just as you said Type 1 diabetes presents differently in different populations. And it's actually on the rise now in, in uh, populations that didn't used to have it, uh, particularly in China, India, those populations, are even in Ethiopia, are seeing a large um, spike in type 1 diabetes. And this was even before the, the COVID um, impact, which, which is sort of uh, driving um, some forms or a type of type 1 diabetes that might not even be related. So, um, to your point, the, that the global uh, epidemiology of this disease really needs to be appreciated and serviced. And the and uh, another lesson learned from COVID was that we we can't have all our eggs in one basket. We have to have the technologies distributed uh, globally. And exactly. and finally, I just think that listening to global scientists and having global scientists interface with one another just adds a, a total richness to the conversation around this disease and, yeah. and ultimately will drive the work faster, uh, which exactly. is what we want. Yeah, true. Um, so thanks, sorry, I went off there. Um, but <laughs> what do you think, how can industry best partner with the scientists to really expedite the process? I mean, you know, are there, is there interface down in Australia where this is occurring? You know, we have JDRF and we have, um, you know, they're, they're international and, and they're supporting uh, people. But how, how other, what other um, ways can this happen? Yeah, you just gave the example of Vertex, which purchased Sema Therapeutics in 950 million. Um, I know like uh, USA is the hub of venture capitalism. More than 100 million have been invested by venture capitalists and almost a billion by corporates in recent years in different labs and startups through multiple arrangements such as research grants, equity partners and acquisitions, as we just discussed, which reflects the willingness of corporates to be a part of the significant discovery and to expedite the whole process. However, uh, considering the complexity of the science we are dealing with, more need to be done to support diverse research groups in different regions of the world for better innovation and effective outcomes. Um, so for instance, I'm working on a philanthropic uh, grant. So we got a really good amount of money by this called John and Anne Chong uh, 
philanthropic grant, uh, which funds my salary as well as our stem cell research. So we need more angel investors, partnership with the industries, corporates, and of course, government organizations. Apart yeah. from monetary fundings, as you, you were asking how industry can uh, participate with the researchers to expedite the whole process. So I believe that apart from monetary fundings, industries have the capacity and infrastructure for scalability and distribution as we were discussing a few minutes back. And this is very important to make this therapy available to millions of people worldwide at affordable price. And also it is important for researchers to interact with industry partners at very early stages of, uh, uh, of their research uh, so that we can, um, we can create the infrastructure uh, which is uh, required uh, for the generation of our uh, differentiated cells or even uh, the implantation devices. For instance, just now I was discussing that how when I uh, grow my fully differentiated cells on basement membrane protein as monolayer, uh, it mimic endogenous interactions and enhances its function. Um, there was recently another paper from Melman's lab, which also show a better outcome when cells are cultured as monolayer um, at specific stages of differentiation. Now, we need to think if this is the way forward, how this could be materialized in large scale production. Therefore, working in close association with industry partners from beginning will help in developing technologies in parallel rather than one step at a time. And just now we were discussing about COVID-19, uh, which is an unprecedented scenario we know that researchers are working in close association with industry partners and government to facilitate the process of developing vaccines as well as preparedness to put the infrastructure in place so that whenever vaccine is um, available um, or after checking the efficacy of the vaccines, it could be produced on large scale to reach billions of population. So when we are talking about type one diabetes, we can take a lift out of this COVID-19 situation and start thinking of bringing all the stakeholders on board from the very beginning, from the start of the project, rather than, you know, now we have made this fabulous, fantabulous, uh, fully mature cells um, using this particular technology and now next what? Um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah. That's a very important um, point. And it's one that I spoke to Inisho Doherty um, at uh, about, uh, he was on a podcast with us. He's at the Critical Path Institute and he focuses on diabetes. And the Critical Path Institute is based in Arizona and they optimize drug and medical product development life cycles by really bringing pharma, government, patients, and acad uh, academics together, like you said, from the beginning. So they're doing a great job there, but they're one, you know, they're one uh, consortium. And uh, to your point, it needs to be a broader, uh, change in the way way people are doing business, way people are doing science and business. Yeah, and I would also just highlight the fact that I spoke to um, women in bio a group um, recently in Southern California, and uh, one woman highlighted the fact that only two point seven percent VC funds only two point seven percent of women owned 
companies, and that includes life science companies. So there is there's a lot of room for women to uh, get women scientists to help change how things are working. True. Was that the question? Oh, sorry. I wondered if, um, you know, if you wanted to say anything um, to sort of the young researchers that are impacted by COVID and, you know, as they're starting up their laboratories. I mean, do you have any, you know, thoughts to share with them or? Um, yeah. So I think we all are facing um this unprecedented uh, challenge uh, in COVID-19. So there is, a, there is a decrease in the research funding uh, from government organization. Um, we all have to uh, think about innovative ideas, how to sustain in the field. First of all, I would say that we need lots of patients. Um, then we need to develop innovative ideas to attract fundings, not just from the government organization, but also philanthropic or angel investors and industry partners. And we, as a women, just now you were saying that um, the companies owned by women um, attract less funding. So we have to work double than our male counterparts, perhaps. Um, to be sustainable in the field. Um, we have to rediscover ourselves or reorient our research to make it significant in immediate future uh, so that people are really interested by our ideas and uh, they can see a benefit in near future uh, rather than just piling on uh, the informations. Um, Last but not the least, we need to keep trying to forge new collaborations and partners for sustainability. So I think I'm like that's what I can think about being a young researcher in the field. So it's really difficult for us to survive right now, and we we all have to be patient and just rediscover ourselves. Yeah, it's a time for pausing and reflection in some ways, maybe digging. Yeah. I've heard of several researchers say it's a, a great time to, you know, dig deep into the literature, um, yeah. try to gain some new ideas from, from papers, you know, maybe you, you didn't look at closely the first go round and um, maybe, you know, time to go over some RNA-seq data, <laughs> things like this, <laughs> way through yeah. those masses of data that hang around. But um, That's what I did. So I did while while we were preparing for lockdown. The first thing I did was to send my samples for single cell sequencing, and I was sure that okay, we can do bioinformatic analysis even when it's lockdown and when I'm on maternity leave. So that's what I said. We need to rediscover, rethink new approaches so that we all keep working and our work should not get hampered. Yeah, and let's hope that something uh, something gives soon, so that we all can get back into laboratory and going full steam. Um, yeah, and I just wanted to say uh, I really appreciate you speaking to us today. Uh, you really touched on a number of very important topics, uh, not only your own excellent research, but the, the, these bigger ideas. 
And these are things that should be discussed, I think, um, on the larger stage. And I hope that um, I hope they will continue to be. So thank you so much, Rena. It was a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, same here. Thank you. Thank you, Monica.